Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. You just said the key word, and that word is persistence. And persistence is essential if you want to make a living with your ideas. You have to keep at it. If you are someone who is easily discouraged or gives up easily, you're not going to make it as an entrepreneur and you're not going to make it as a creative because it's just too hard. And there's this whole false notion out there, I think, fostered by uh, social media that everything is just great all the time and I'm doing great <laughs> all the time. And it's a lot of work. Yeah. And the only way that you can continue to put out the energy that it takes is that you have persistence. And I think what fuels the persistence is understanding what your motivations are for doing it in the first place. Because it's really easy to lose track of that when you're just up against the wall all the time. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Jeffrey, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Well, thank you, Srini, for having me on. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I actually came across your work because of your publicist who sent me uh, your book, Creative Careers, Making a Living from Your Ideas. Uh, or making a living with your ideas. And, you know, I think that is one of those things that is incredibly important to almost all of our listeners, myself included. And yet it's one of those things that I think is very sort of mysterious to find sort of how you connect the dots between creativity and money, which we will get to. But before we, you know, get into that, uh, I want to start by asking, what did your parents do for work? And how did that end up uh, influencing and shaping the choices that you've made throughout your life and your career? Well, my mom and dad were both retailers. Uh, before they got married, my dad worked at a shoe store and my mom worked at a department store, both in Akron, Ohio. Uh, and then, uh, shortly before getting married, my dad opened his own store. And, uh, when they got married, they became partners and they had, uh, sold women's and children's clothing. And at one point had four small specialty stores in Akron. So, you know, I grew up in an entrepreneurial household. Mm -hmm. uh, my parents always had their own businesses. And I have a sister and she has her own business. She's a, yeah. a retailer in Charleston, South Carolina. Mm. 
what uh, did they you know, teach you about making your way in the world as a child in terms of like what you might consider doing as an adult? I think to me, this this question is always one of those things of, OK, you grew up in an immigrant families. We definitely don't get encouraged to do things that have, you know, uh, risk involved where the potential is, oh, you know, your life might not have security, although nothing has security. I think security is an illusion nowadays. Right. Uh, but what did your parents tell you about making a living and, and sort of uh, making your way in the world? You know, I never, ever got any kind of pontification or lecture about that. Uh, mm. My parents were great in terms of, you know, I, and this wasn't this wasn't really teaching. It was just living and modeling by example. So my parents were uh, had great relationships with the people that worked for them. They had great relationships outside of work, too, in terms of lifelong friendships. And I certainly learned those things from them. Uh, I worked in their stores when I was a little kid. You know, I would unpack things. I would make sure they received the right quantity of the things that were ordered. So that I'd have the bill of lading from the shipper. I'd have their invoice and bill and, you know, make sure that everything was right. So I learned certain things about business, you know, by doing them. Uh, but they never, ever tried to impose anything on me in terms of how I would make a living or what career path I should take or anything like that. That was always uh, just up to me to find what it was that I wanted to do. Yeah. Uh, how is it different for you and your sister in terms of, of trajectories? I mean, I know you mentioned that she's a retailer. Like, you know, I always wonder with people or siblings, like my sister and I are you know, polar opposites. Like she's a doctor and I'm an author. Well, there are good doctor authors. That's true. Atul Gawande is an incredible writer. But yeah, it's, you know, we just, you know, we have such different strengths. And, and so I always wonder, uh, you know, how upbringing was different for each one of them. Because I find that as the older sibling, I didn't get away with nearly as much. <laughs> right. You're the training ground. Yeah, well, especially in an immigrant family, you're the experiment in which, uh, you know, your parents basically fix everything they fucked up with you on your sibling, if you're the first one. <laughs> yeah, I think that uh, with my sister, she worked at the store. And when she displayed that she had a real talent for uh, selling and she had a real talent for display and for also buying you know, she counseled with my mom in terms of what would buy, what they should buy for the store, or what they should sell. I think that she got a lot of very positive reinforcement for, you know, her interest and her savvy in retailing. And, you know, as an independent retailer, she's been in business now for 45 years or so, which is an incredible testament uh, to my sister. Her name is Janice McMiniman. Uh, it's a real testament, you know, to her talent and training that she had, I didn't have that kind of interest in retail. Yeah. So, you know, I, I very quickly went off in my own direction. I did learn because, you know, my parents had me on the sales floor when I was a young kid. And as I mentioned, how I unpacked and received merchandise. So I had a concept of business. I had a concept of what things cost and what they sold for and what markup was and those kinds of things. So I learned a lot of valuable business lessons that are applicable to my life now and have been throughout my life. So, uh, you know, I think the main difference was that I had just had different things that interested me 
than my sister had that interested her. Although there is a convergence, you know, when we talk about theater, when we talk about film, when we talk about books, you know, we share a lot of similar sensibilities about those. But I never had an interest in going into retail, but I did, in fact, even make money during college in retail sales and mm -hmm. buying. And I think that's all because of my background. So I think what's interesting about uh, your background and, and the work that you do is that you happen to be a teacher at a school, but also a practitioner, um, which often, you know, we have people who are teachers at school who, you know, aren't practicing what they talk about, which is why I sometimes I'm like business school professors who've never started a business are teaching you how to do this. So I was like, this doesn't make any sense. Um, but you're not one of those people. And the reason that is something that, that is of interest to me is, you know, I wonder, as somebody who is in the position to teach, you know, at a place like the one you teach at, Parsons, like, what do you think that we should be teaching uh, kids in school? Because I can tell you, at least the way I grew up, the thought of making a living with your ideas was never on the table. You don't make a living from your ideas. You make a living by getting yourself a job, you know? And, and I think that that's a very dominant narrative for most people in our culture. And you actually are presenting an alternative to that. And the thing is, it doesn't happen until much later in life, because by the time somebody gets into your classroom, I'm guessing they're well into their, you know, like 20s or, you know, right out of high school. Right. Well, that's right. Well, you know, the thing is, in, in making a living with your ideas, uh, you know, there's a there's a bunch to unpack there. Uh, yeah. And part of that is, you know, you do have to have a job, so to speak. If you, if you define job as somehow being compensated for the service or product that you're providing, you know, we all have jobs. So although I'm an entrepreneur and I started the company, it is also a job, you know? And so I think that there's a lot of delineations and divisions that happen that, create a false sense of what things are. And that false sense becomes a very limiting sense. Yeah. So for instance, you know, a lot of people think that creativity is strictly something to do with the arts, right. now, you know, and I'm in the arts, you know, I do film, uh, I've written a play and I'm producing that and, you know, written a book, you know, that's so being a writer or a director or a playwright, that's the arts. But I'm also an entrepreneur. And I believe that, you know, all these things that we do uh, inform what we do and how we do it. And what I mean by that is that an entrepreneur has an idea. That idea ultimately is manifest in presenting something for sale, be it a product or a service or whatever. But they've created something from nothing that started with an idea. Well, that's how a film starts. That's how a book starts. That's how a play starts. That's how a painting starts. You have an idea first, and then you have this compelling need to express that idea. So I look at creativity as something very different than what I think is a traditional and narrow definition of it. Yeah. Well, it, that's, yeah, absolutely. I guess, you know, the thing is, it's one of those things, it, it, you're not finding this in most schools. Like I, a class like yours doesn't exist at a place like Berkeley, where I went to school. And I wonder, as somebody who is teaching from this perspective, what changes do you think we would need to bring about in the education system? Like, how would you change education as an educator right now? Well, I think that creativity in its broadest sense ought to be encouraged. 
That's one thing. Uh, a big change from when I was in college uh, was, you know, I had a double major in philosophy and psychology. Tried to get a job as a sage, but all the wisdom factories were shutting down at that time. <laughs> and, you know, that's that's not, never was and still isn't considered a practical line of pursuit. Yeah. Uh, but again, the ideas that I were was exposed to helped pave a path for me forward in terms of critical thinking and how I approach things and how I look at things. So again, one of the important ideas is that everything you do informs everything else you do. And a lot of people don't see that linkage, you know, especially if they had, you know, I was started off as a clothing designer uh, and now I'm a playwright, an author, and I'm teaching, you know, where's, you know, where's the linear path there? There isn't one, you know? So I think that real life lessons ought to be taught. Uh -huh. And part of those real life lessons are, if this is what you want to do, then here's how you need to think about it. If you want to make a living with your ideas. Yeah. Well, I, I love that you, you brought up you know, the idea of two things that don't seem like they'd be related at all, because I started out with jobs in sales. And I remember thinking, I'm like, I hate this job. I've been fired from them. Ten years later, I'm literally doing that on the phone, selling people tickets to our conference. And then I, in business school, the first you know couple of weeks I was there, because I went to a, a second tier business school where people didn't recruit, I got uh, I sent emails to people or messages on LinkedIn to people, and I did informational interviews with them to see if I could get a job. And I was like, wait a minute, I built the foundation for interviewing people on that. That's strange. Um, I hadn't made that connection, you know, until just a couple of months back. Well, yeah, that's right. But it, you know, it's interesting. Like one of my jobs when I was a kid, I was 15 years old, and I did door to door sales. And, you know, that's, uh, I mean, these days people wouldn't open the door for you, but yeah. back then, you know, I was, uh, you know, I dressed up with a sport jacket and tie. I was a young kid and people opened the door, but what I had to do really quickly was engage them. Otherwise they would close the door. You know, uh -huh. I would get a nice smile and nod of the head and say, not today. Thank you. And, uh, you know, so in the ability to engage people quickly is what I learned <clears throat> when I worked at my parents' store when I was a little kid. Yeah. You know, I could approach people, may I help you with anything? Hi, how mm -hmm. are you today? Something to begin a dialogue. <clears throat> well, yeah. I didn't think about that as I got older until I reached a point and started reflecting back and saying, you know, yeah, that made me not reluctant to, to approach people that I didn't know working in my parents' store. Same thing doing door-to-door -door sales, knocking on that door, not knowing who would answer, and being able to engage them quickly. That's suited me well my entire life. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems, too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Mm-hmm. So well, I think there's are wearing, you know, a shirt and tie when you sold door to door. I was with, you know, ex cons and, and, and pants. Books. <laughs> yeah. Well, I sold gas station coupon books with ex cons door to door. Really? Yeah. Believe it or not. It's my first job in college. Now that's, that sounds like a good job, but you had, you faced the same challenges, didn't you? Yeah. I mean, it was funny because I, well, I mean, it was so fascinating because I think what it did was it, it immediately sort of exposed me to people that I would never have met given how protective my Indian parents are. One of the guys I think had just gotten out of prison for selling meth. Uh Uh-huh. So (laughs) needless to say, I wasn't at that job very long. But would you say that you did in fact get some valuable lessons out of that work? Oh yeah. I mean, it was, it was, you know, it took a lot of persistence to basically go door to door in the cold, knowing that you could spend eight hours and not make a dime. Right. And by the way, you just uh, said what I believe is the key word, which translates into the key lesson that you have to learn if you're going to try to make a living from your ideas. And that's persistence. And persistence is essential if you want to make a living with your ideas. You have to keep at it. If you are someone who is easily discouraged or gives up easily, you're not going to make it as an entrepreneur and you're not going to make it as a creative because it's just too hard. And there's this whole false notion out there, I think, fostered by uh, social media that everything is just great all the time and I'm doing great (laughs) all the time. And it's a lot of work. 
Yeah. And the only way that you can continue to put out the energy that it takes is that you have persistence. And I think what fuels the persistence is understanding what your motivations are for doing it in the first place. Because it's really easy to lose track of that when you're just up against the wall all the time. Let's do a deeper dive into this because there's numerous places. This is where, you know, you actually talk about this in the vision chapter. And that was, I wanted to talk about success on your own terms. But before we do that, um, I want to go back to the persistence thing because, uh, you know, I had this mentor and I brought this conversation up before, you know, on the show just because I think it's, it's actually a very interesting uh subject, he talked very extensively about the fact that, you know, you brought up social media and the world that we live in almost encourages this sort of positive thinking to a, you know, you know, level of delusion where I guess, you know, the, you know, for you, the question I would say is, okay, well, like, what's the difference between persistence and, you know, putting yourself into a Sisyphean endeavor, which is never going to lead anywhere? Because I think that, you know, I think I wrote this today. I said, you know, you don't hear about the people who work 10,000 hours, work their asses off and amounted to nothing. Nobody right, writes self-help right. books about them. But right. those stories are probably a lot more common than the outliers that we get to read the books about. And so, you know, I, I think that that finding that fine line is something I've thought a lot about um, because I, I do think that there is some sort of like we sell people on a dream to a fault sometimes. And you are somebody who has had a you know, career that sustained multiple decades. So what do you have to say about that? Well, Srini, that's a great point and a great distinction you make, because I also ask that question, what is the, what's the distinction between having persistence and being delusional? Yeah. (laughs) And, uh, and you're right. You know, the stories are written about those that make it unless, and this is going to theater. Now you look at Willie Loman, Death of a Salesman by Arthur Miller, uh-huh. you know, which is probably a more common story, but it's depressing, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and Willie Loman's phrase is attention must be paid. But so many of us go through life without getting that attention. And it's yeah. very, very difficult. So the difference, I think, is that you have to be honest with yourself, which also means that you have to be really, it's not harsh. I'm not quite sure what the word is, but let's say realistic, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because the main thing is that you have to be, how can I say this? You can't be the only one in love with the idea. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes. So uh, that goes back to the business principle of proof of concept. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I was compelled to write this play. It's a play about Lloyd Price, who is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, who broke down the wall that was called Race Records, where you can only buy records by black artists if you went to a black record store. And Lloyd shattered that wall of race records because he was the first teenager to sell over a million records. And nobody's prejudice against green. So, (laughs) you know, so he was able, he was able to make his career. Uh, And so anyhow, when I started the play, I thought I met Lloyd. I was fascinated by his life story. I told him, I know I can capture your voice. I want to tell your story. And I had been hired to do a short documentary about him. And that's how I learned about him. I knew his music. I knew nothing about his life. So, you do what's called a table read where you get a bunch of actors together. It doesn't cost much. They're sitting around a table and they read the script. So me as the writer, 
can hear it and hear, you know, how it sounds. Well, then you go through other iterations and doing a play is like doing a startup. You cross different thresholds. And as you cross those thresholds, you need to get more financing. And then we got the play in front of an audience uh, and we did what's called a 29 hour. And then we got it a year later in front of a much bigger audience and that audience saw a full-up production. No sets or costumes or props, but all the choreography, all the music, all of that kind of thing. That enabled us to get more money. So each step along the journey, I was yeah. establishing proof of concept that actually there's an audience of people that really like this, right? So I, I had my proof of concept. I wasn't just writing up in the attic, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And then thinking, this is a flawless work that people are going to love. You put it yeah. in front of people, just like when I was designing, which was my first adult career, the clothing had to sell. So yeah. the first thing I did was in a little boutique I was working at when I was in college, I put the clothes I designed in that store and the clothing sold quickly. I had proof of concept. So I think that you, that's what I mean by being realistic. You got to put right. it out there and see, do people actually pay for it? Because also advice is cheap. Yeah. Will people really pay for what you're doing? And you've got to test that along the way. And that, I think, is the real distinction between being delusional and being yeah. persistent. Wow. Well, it's funny that, that you say, you know, will, will people pay for it? Because I remember meeting this girl at some party, one of my friends, you know, parent, like one of my high school friends, mom introduced us and she's like, oh, she's a writer. And I was like, okay, here goes. And she's, you know, it was a Stanford MBA, worked at some pharmaceutical company. And she's like, oh, I've been working on this book for five years. And I was like, really five years? And it was like, what the hell? She's like, why? She's like, you can't just sit down and write. And my friends is like, you're the wrong person to say that to Srini because I write every morning and I just look at her. I was like, this is going to sound really rude. I'm thinking to myself, I was like, you know what? That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. That's complete and utter bullshit, uh, which wasn't polite by any stretch of the imagination. But I think it was Stephen King who was like, yeah, he was like, if you want to be a writer, you know, being a member of polite society is something you threw out the window a long time ago. Uh, but I remember telling her, I was like, you don't, you don't seem to understand that at the end of the day, like this is art, but it's still a business. Like a publisher is not going to, you know, just suddenly come to you because you think you have this brilliant idea and you're a Stanford MBA. So the fact that you don't understand that is baffling to me. Well, you're right. That's tough. Uh, but it may also be necessary if you are a writer that you have a certain incubation period. Yeah. And that incubation period is when, and who knows how long that is. Mm -hmm. uh, but it could be a few years before you feel ready to present it. Yeah. Now, clearly she wasn't making her living writing at that point, mm -hmm. uh, if she ever made a living writing, but she certainly wasn't making a living then. And, you know, people are often really reluctant to take the risk to put their work out there. I was hungry to put my work in front of an audience in terms of the play. I was hungry to get my clothing out there I designed so people could buy it because that's the metric in terms of staying in business. You yeah. know, it's because doing business, selling things is a survival skill. Mm. And I think that's really important if you want to make a living with your ideas. 
So one of the things that you, I mean, you open the book about uh, talking specifically about this idea of success on your own terms, which I think is a, is a perfect segue from what we've been just talking about between, you know, finding that line between persistence and, you know, delusion. Many of the people that you have worked with as clients are kind of those outliers. They're the sort of, you know, icons in culture. I know because having read the book, it was like, wow, these are people that I watched growing up. Everybody, and some of them, of course, have been guests on a show. But, you know, people like Kathy Ireland, like working with Ralph Lauren. I mean, how many of us are going to become those people? Like, yet, when we say success in our own terms, those people actually become the standard by which we measure success so often. Uh, so in the midst of having all these influences from around us, knowing that these people set the bar for what we as a culture think of as success, how do you actually get success on your own terms? Well, you know, it's interesting because I also think that we worship false gods, uh, <laughs> and what I mean by that is that because that is a certain measure of success, possibly culturally, that they have accumulated a lot of wealth, mm -hmm. that doesn't necessarily mean that they're happy. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're fulfilled. Yeah. Now, as my grandmother, who was a very wise woman, said, it's better to be rich and healthy than poor and sick. You know, she just has a keen insight into life. But the idea of trying to measure yourself against the outlier success of a Ralph Lauren or a Steve Jobs or a Kathy Ireland or whoever, I think is a false notion because, you know, what are, what are you, what fulfills you? What are you looking for in your life? One of the things that I learned early and I was fortunate to learn it so young is, you know, when I was 21, I had 110, 120 people working for me and an office in New York uh, and a sales force and an office in Los Angeles. And it was horrible, you know, and I realized that one of the things I don't want to do is have to manage that many people all the time. And, you know, at that time, my nose was so pressed up against the window of success that from the outside, it looks so successful, but that really wasn't making me happy. What made me happy was the process of creating things and doing things. And all of that other stuff wasn't really what I was interested in. And uh, I ended up moving to New York. I was in Wisconsin at that point. It was after college and when I started my first company. So I think you really have to ask yourself, not what is society's measure of success, but rather what brings satisfaction and fulfillment to you? Yeah. And I think that it's, there's, it's so rarely looked at. And that's what's surprising to me. I mean, you know, you could have a really nice business to make a really nice amount of money. And that business could be quite small. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. if you were, if you were able to, you could create a business depending of course on where you live and what your lifestyle is and so on. But, you know, you could make, a few hundred thousand a year, yeah. be very happy and not driving yourself crazy trying to build an empire because you think that the only way you can be successful is to be that big. So I, th I think you have to ask yourself, you know, what is it? If you're a writer and what you crave most is the ability to write and sell your work and you aren't looking to become something for everybody and if you don't sell your book to Steven Spielberg and get on the right. bestseller list that, you know, it's meaningless to you. What yeah. fulfills you? What are you looking for? 
Yeah, I remember when Ryan Holiday, who now is, you know, had three New York Times bestsellers on the list at the same time, was here uh, when Stillness came out, or, or when the I think it was, maybe it was the one before. No, it was Ego as the Enemy. He said, you know, he said if your happiness, you know, depends on how the market receives your creative work, and then he said you're setting yourself up for a life of profound disappointment. I agree. I think yeah. that's right. And you know, so you know, I guess the question that arises is. Can you make a lot of money, more than you will ever need, but if you are miserable doing that activity that generates the income for you, are you successful? So let's talk about this idea of, you know, how much you can make and and what's possible because we just had William Dershowitz here. Um, He wrote a book called Excellent Sheep, uh, The Miseducation of the American Elite, and he just had a new book come out called Death of the Artist. Uh, and he had some really interesting takes on all of this. And I, you know, given your background, I want to kind of, you know, tease it apart with you. He said that, you know, he feels that the narrative that we have put out into the world of, oh, anybody can do anything with technology, you know, and because like it makes all this stuff possible is kind of not entirely true because he's the reality is that, uh, Big tech is basically, you know, using these platforms and there's an unequitable distribution of wealth where they make the overwhelming majority of the money. But they're, you know, these the artists who build their platforms are the ones who basically drive uh, all the traffic and eyeballs. And, you know, I mean, look, I think, you know, from your background that a career in the arts or making a living from your ideas, no matter what they are is never going to be easy. Your odds of success are always going to be lower than they would if you you know, have something that is sort of predictable and safe. Uh, But he was really challenging the notion that, you know, there was a point at which you could live a a comfortable middle-class life as a working artist. And he's, and he said, and that was at a level of not sort of breakout success, but commercial success that allows you to keep doing what you're doing. So I I wonder uh, what your view is on all that. Uh, Because the thing is, I remember he said, he said, you know, do you know how many podcasts there are on iTunes right now? A million. And he said, and you know how many of those people think they're going to be the next Joe Rogan? Most of them. And mm-hmm. so, and we, you and I both know that's not true. I, even Oprah's producers themselves said there will never be another Oprah simply because of the fact that the media landscape is not designed for that anymore. Well, I think the examples you brought up, and you mentioned Ralph Lauren before, who I've worked yeah. with for 36 years. Here, here's what's interesting about it. Ralph Lauren, Oprah, uh, all of these different Steve Jobs, uh, these people didn't start off big. Yeah. Uh, they started off as small independent businesses. Apple, you know, in the garage with what Wozniak, Ralph Lauren selling ties out of an office building at the uh, Empire State Building. Uh, so they didn't start off big and they grew. And I think that one of the necessary conditions of building that kind of empire, if you will, is obsession. And you have to be obsessed to do that. And I'm not saying that's a good or a bad thing. I'm saying it's a necessary condition to achieve the scale that those businesses achieved. Mm -hmm. There's no other way it happens. It doesn't just happen because you did something good. It happens because there is an obsession and there's a lot of things that go into that level of success. But that driver is the person behind it who is obsessed with that notion of success. Mm -hmm. Uh, And most of us aren't that driven. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, it's true. It's it's, it's funny. I mean, there's a book about this called All In. Uh, I don't remember the, the author's name that I read. And he talks specifically about both the upsides and the downsides. Because I think that most people only see the sort of, you know, highlights. It's like, oh, Ralph Lauren, those amazing shirts that you see at every damn expensive uh, department store. You don't see what cost this comes at. Because, you know, I've talked to Elon Musk's ex-wife, Justine. I've had her as a guest on the show. And she's like, these accomplishments often come at the cost of everything else in your life. Right. Right. That's right. And, and that's why I think it's really important to do that kind of introspection. And yeah. maybe you need, you know, maybe that kind of introspection you can't do yourself. Maybe you need a professional to help you with that. But uh, I think that it's it's very important because I think that, again, there's that false notion of what success is as opposed to realizing, well, that may not be something that fits who you are. Mm-hmm. So you have to ask yourself very specific questions like, what does success look like to me? If I can make X amount of money and that money's not to concern in any profound way, and I'm doing what I love doing and look forward to doing it, am I successful? Even though I didn't reach the scale that these allegedly very successful businesses have reached, you know, yeah. so what do you want out of your life? And a lot of people, well, a lot of people never ask themselves that question. And a lot of other people don't ask that question until they're well into middle age, wondering, is that all there is? Mm-hmm. <laughs> this doesn't feel so good. It was supposed to feel a lot better than this. Yeah. And, and I know very wealthy people who uh, have experienced that sense of emptiness and lack of purpose because what they thought was going to be the solution for whatever hole they were trying to fill yeah. in themselves didn't fill it. Yeah. Well, I remember Josh Ratner saying to to Sam Jones that for people who don't know Josh Ratner, he's the like main character in How I Met Your Mother. And he said a successful career in the arts is rigged for dissatisfaction. And so if you're not a person who is grounded in any way, it can really just completely fuck you up. You know, it was it was interesting when I was able to raise enough money and had had enough positive response for my play. And we moved to the workshop, full-up workshop stage that I mentioned. What was really interesting is there was a moment before we started, and you start by doing a table read again, having all the actors assembled into one space, which is at the theater where we were rehearsing. And I looked around, and there was about 55 people in that room. And I thought, wow, this is pretty damn cool. All these people here, the what they have in common is the script that I wrote. <laughs> and everybody is going to be a part of building that into something. And if the play is successful, it becomes a business. Because you got to sell tickets, right? That's what you're selling. You're selling a play. You got to sell tickets or it doesn't stay open. And I just took a moment to think, wow, this is really cool that it's gotten this far. You know, now, of course, my satisfaction is going to come when we have major commercial run and that the show's got a lifespan and all of that kind of thing. Because, again, I'm trying to build a business with this play. But it, it's it's also, I think, being able to pause, reflect and appreciate what you have done. And a lot of people aren't able to give that reward to themselves. And that's too bad because that leads to a lot of frustration and unhappiness. Yeah. 
Well, let's do this. Um, I know you cover a couple of different areas. Like I said, I mean, I have to kind of cherry pick which ones I want to tease apart and go through with you. But you talk about, you know, the power of story and running your ideas like a business. Let's talk briefly about story. Uh, I think because that also tends to be one of those very sort of nebulous concepts for a lot of people. They understand that it's important. It's it's funny, you know, the the number one thing I look for in every single person I interview is, is there something about this story that's actually going to be entertaining to me? Um, in some way, you know, like, it's funny, I will actually choose something that's entertaining over something that's educational, uh, because I understand that audio is an entertainment medium. And, you know, so let, let's talk kind of, you know, high level about how you actually tell a story about the work that you do. Well, first, uh, I, I want to point out that it doesn't have to either be educational or entertaining. No, it can be both. You know, and, you know, you can be talking about astrophysics. And if you ever have heard Neil deGrasse Tyson talk, right. he's entertaining as hell. Yeah. And you're also learning something. Totally. Right. So yeah. I think that, you know, there are no boring subjects. There are lots of boring teachers. <laughs> <laughs> and it's all how you frame it. So a story is something that, you know, what you seek as or what I should say what I seek as a writer, for instance, in the play, is that the audience for that wants to, they're compelled to want to know what's going to happen next. You know, there's a problem that's set up, and how is that problem resolved? And that's basically what a story is. You know, the character goes from A to C, and the B is all the obstacles they have to overcome to get to C, <laughs> you know? So it's the hero's journey, as it's called by some, like Joseph Campbell. But really, you know, he, he codified this in mythology, but it's the way stories have been told forever. Uh, and so an engaging story requires a, certainly a talent on the part of the author. Uh, and it, then it requires the engagement of that audience because they have to know, they have to want to know what's going to happen next because mm -hmm. without that, you don't have the engagement. And if you don't have the engagement, you don't have a story worth hearing. Yeah. Let's talk about this concept of running your ideas like a business, because I think that this is the one thing that I see. It took me a really long time to get my head around this, but I think that there's one phrase that I heard on this show from a woman named Samantha Bennett. And she told me, she said, you're always getting paid and you're getting paid in the currency that you're asking for. So she said, if you're asking for Facebook likes, that's what you're going to get paid in. She's like, if you ask for money, that's how you're going to get paid. And that was like such a light bulb moment for me because I realized it's like, wow, you've built an audience of people who love everything, but you don't make any money off of this. So it's an expensive hobby at this point. Now, you know, not that I think you should treat your audience like your ATM, but you know, you have to sustain this work. Like I remember when somebody complained that we were selling things, I said, look, you basically get to consume this for free because the people that are buying from us are subsidizing your ability to consume it for free. So if you don't like that, then don't let the door hit your ass on the way out. By the way, you just defined television. Okay. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, you just defined, <laughs> they're in trouble now, but newspapers and magazines. Yeah. You know, I mean, when you would buy, when magazines were happening in a major way for decades and decades, it's not like it cost $5 to print that magazine. It was a lot more than that. But all of that was subsidized by the advertising in there. And, you know, what they weren't really, they weren't really selling the magazine or TV shows weren't really selling the show. 
they were selling the audience to advertisers. Mm-hmm. And by the way, that model hasn't changed. People refer to it as Facebook, as social media. It's corporate yeah. media. You know, uh, these are corporate media platforms because they sell their audience to advertisers. So I just wanted to draw that distinction because I think that that's, that's really important mm-hmm. distinction to make. Yeah. Now, but frame the question again for me then, yeah, if you would. So I guess, you, know, you talk about um, sort of three parts of the running it like a business, which is, you know, left or right, determining your value and, and advice to yourself. And even the determining value thing was one that kind of really stuck out to me because I think that that's one of those places where a lot of people tend to undervalue themselves. I know for sure as hell I do. I remember talking to somebody who's like, your keynote fee should be twice as much. And I was like, really? I was like, you think somebody will pay that? He said, yes, because that's the perception that you're going to create. Well, I think that part of that is, you know, is that coming from a person who makes their living doing keynote speeches or is that yeah. coming from a friend? No, it's from somebody who basically works with people who basically make their, I mean, all of his clients are keynote speakers. So, yeah, you know, it's interesting. Uh, uh, a friend of mine, Chris Voss, mm-hmm. who wrote never, yep. you know, never split the difference and Chris had this phrase, uh, which is never take advice from someone who you wouldn't change places with. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, so, uh, and I thought that was a really, really insightful statement. Uh, yeah. but I, I think that, so what is the question? I'm sorry. Yeah. I mean, when you talk about determining your value, cause I, I think that you look at most creative people, the idea, they don't really know how to run it like a business. Like they don't know how to run their ideas like a business. That's one of those things that I've seen sort of lacking is making that, you know, bridging that gap between, hey, I have this amazing idea and it might even have a lot of people behind it, but they can't somehow connect it to running it like a business. So it goes back to what we were talking about before, which is what I think is really critical at a certain point is proof of concept. In other words, again, you cannot be the only one in love with the idea. You have to put it out there and you have to test it. And if you're afraid to do that or reluctant to do that, because it's never going to be perfect, you have to ask yourself, why? Why haven't I put it out there and put it to that test? This is what I want to do. So how do you put it out there and how do you then test it to see, in fact, there are other people who think this is a good idea and they're willing to pay something for it? Now, by the way, there is nothing to matter in the example that you gave that it's an expensive hobby. If you can afford that expensive hobby and that hobby gives you fulfillment and you enjoy doing it, that's great. You know, nothing the matter with that. But if you hope to turn it into a business as opposed to a hobby, then you need to have that proof of concept. You also need to know uh, the basics of business, which is at some point you have to have more money coming in than going out. (laughs) You know, but I think that... uh, it's it's really an individual's determination of what they want out of it. But I think that what stops a lot of people is their fear and the self-doubt they have in terms of putting their ideas out there and seeing if there's real interest in it. Because that can become a shattering blow if you find out that nobody is interested or certainly not enough to make a living at it. Yeah. Wow. Um, well, this has been absolutely fascinating and uh, just 
filled with all sorts of nuggets. I'm very glad that it wasn't sort of this like linear structured conversation, even though we, you know, it seems like we went all over the place. Uh, but uh, I want to finish by asking you one final question, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? You know, that's really a question that you pose to the receiver, the audience, the purchaser, or whatever. Because, you know, it's interesting, as as the creator of something, you have your intent, right? I'll give you a simple example. If you're a comedian, the intent is to make somebody laugh. And I have friends that are comedians. And I find it absolutely fascinating because they are at risk whenever they walk out on a stage because they can put out there what they think is their best material and it can fall flat. Okay. So what makes somebody unmistakable, I think, is their ability to somehow learn from and turn around what may initially be perceived of as a failure and to keep moving forward. And I think that that's the unmistakable part, ties back into persistence. But I think that that's what's really important is having that distinctive difference. And sometimes that distinctive difference is, you know, we're always in process of solving problems. You know, creativity is solving a problem. And I think how you do that and your process and what result that leads to is the distinctive difference that can make you an unmistakable creative. Hmm. Amazing. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your wisdom and insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, uh, your work and the book and everything else that you're up to? Uh, they can find out about a creative career by going to the website, a creative career.com. The that has uh, videos from the class that I teach at Parsons School for Design. And my hope is to get dialogues going about people's responses to the ideas that are put out there. Uh, You can also on that website, find my book and all the different places you can buy it. And the book is called Creative Careers, Making a Living with Your Ideas. And there's also an Instagram site. And that's at a creative career, which has short clips because you can only have short clips on Instagram, but they're, they're pretty cool with the wonderful guests that I have had. And you can also look at madoffproductions.com, which is my film and video uh, company. And you can see the kinds of things that we produce for clients like Ralph Lauren, Victoria's Secret, uh, Tiffany, and a bunch of other people. So that's where I can be found. And I'm also on LinkedIn and started a LinkedIn group called Creative Careers, where I hope it's an idea for the really robust exchange of ideas and creative ideas and how business relates to creativity. So I'm trying to get a real dialogue going on there too. Awesome. Uh, and for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. How does appreciation feel to you? A rising rush of warmth? A building wave of confidence? 
At Reward Gateway Eden Red, we know appreciation appreciates in value. Starting with people, radiating through companies to transform their performance and productivity. Capture the power of appreciation with our total employee experience platform. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.